I invite you to open with me in your copy of the Bible to the book of Jonah. We're going to be studying the second chapter of Jonah this morning. It can be found starting on page 774, if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. And to review where we left off last time, that is if you watched the video of our previous sermon in Jonah when we were uh, uh, forced to stay at home with uh, the chilly weather and the snow last time we were in Jonah chapter 1. The book of Jonah began when Jonah was called to preach to the city of Nineveh, one of the leading cities of one of the most brutal kingdoms of the day, a kingdom uh, that was often at the throat of Israel and Judah. But Jonah had no interest in going to preach to Nineveh because he had no interest in seeing his enemies become his brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. And so Jonah ran in the opposite direction. But the good news of our passage, and really the good news of the gospel, is that the Lord doesn't let his wayward people go. He won't abandon Jonah. He won't abandon his mission for the gospel to go to the nations. And so we heard how the Lord threw this great storm upon the sea, how Jonah was hurled into the sea as well. And now we read what unfolds in the book as Jonah sinks down to the depths of the sea. So with that context in mind, hear now the word of the Lord, Jonah 1:17 through the end of chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pits, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to, your, to, to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Most of you know that a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of traveling overseas to India. I look forward to sharing a lot more about that trip and uh, during the Missions Fest uh, next month and share about our time there. But to share just one thing, while I was there, I was quite thankful throughout the trip that nearly every sign we saw, directional sign on the roads and the airports and even menus in the restaurant, often offered an English translation. You may know that there are a ton of languages in India. I think there are even thousands of different languages in India. And in most of the places we traveled to, Hindi was the dominant language. Uh, most every sign that we saw was written in Hindi. And for the most part, everybody we spoke to, at least in the northern part of the country, Hindi was their first language. But because of India's history, 
English also has a prominent place in the culture. The, the government conducts all of its business in both Hindi and in English. English is um, the language that the Constitution of India was written in. And um, anyone who conducts business or education um, speaks, tends to speak English. English is said to be a language that unifies all of the other linguistically diverse parts of India. And as an American, well, I was quite thankful for that. Because if you've ever seen Hindi before, having never studied the language before, which I have never studied it before, well, you'd probably be helpless, like I was, to even sound out the letters. Now, in contrast, if you were to see German or French or Spanish, having never studied those languages either, you may at least be able to sound out the words and understand the letters that you see. There may even be a few cognates in those languages that you could pick up here or there. But that's not the case in Hindi. I couldn't pronounce any of the letters at all, let alone the words. They looked like Egyptian hieroglyphics as far as I was concerned. Uh, Hindi is a language that if you were to learn it, you would have to begin with the basic building blocks of just trying to understand each of the letters, the alphabet of Hindi, and then how to pronounce those letters. And so this is why I was thankful throughout our entire trip that nearly every sign we saw was both in Hindi and in English, and for the most part, if someone spoke Hindi and nothing else, there was always someone close at hand who could translate for us, who spoke English, and who could help us when we needed it. It was another trip where I was so thankful to have people who were always on hand to translate for us, much like we had in Colombia last summer uh, with Jairo. We were attached to the hip with Jairo. We needed him to help us translate everything we saw, and that was the case in India as well. Because without translation, for the written word and the spoken word, I would have been lost, I would have been weary, exhausted, and quite anxious in trying to navigate this other world that is the nation of India. Well, understand that our need for translation is not only necessary if we travel to linguistically diverse parts of the world where we don't know the language or the culture, it's also necessary at a deeper level too. Whenever we try to understand and make sense of many of our experiences in this life under the sun of despair. I'll take Jonah for example. In the previous passage in Jonah chapter 1, we saw that the prophet terribly misunderstood several important things, right? He misunderstood, for, for one thing, God's sovereignty by foolishly thinking that he could somehow run from God and God wouldn't find him. He misunderstood the extent of God's mercy because he didn't appreciate God's desire to make worshipers out of a remnant from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he even misunderstood his own sin by thinking that he was inherently better than the people of Nineveh and more deserving than them. And so as Jonah sinks to the depths of the sea in our passage and is then swallowed up by this great fish, he's given some time to reflect. You know, if the previous chapter in Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, was action-packed and moved along with a lot of pace, well, now in Jonah chapter 2, the narrative slows down, and Jonah begins to translate everything that just happened through a prism of truth. You know, one of the things that I've noticed about teaching through translation over the years is, is that it forces you as the teacher to slow down and actually reflect a lot more intentionally on the things that you say and how you say them. And in the same way, Jonah is now forced to slow down. He has a few days to kill in the belly of the fish. And so what better thing to do than to reflect a little bit and to translate? 
And we'll see as we study our passage just how Jonah translates his confusing experiences that just transpired into something understandable and discernible. But for us, the lessons that we hear Jonah reflect upon in this prayer are also important lessons for us to take to heart in our weariness and despair as well. Because like Jonah, we often need to slow down and translate our experiences under the sun, which can sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, feel a lot like Hindi, very confusing and hard to make sense of. And so our big idea as we plunge into the passage before us is simply this, slow down and translate well. Slow down and translate well. And to aid us as we do just that, our our passage provides us with three really important lessons that Jonah needs to learn, and by extension, that we need to learn as well if we have any hope in our lives of translating well. So these three lessons are as follows. First, we hear a lesson in God's sovereignty, a lesson in sovereignty. Second, a lesson in sin. And then third, a lesson in salvation. Lesson in sovereignty, lesson in sin, and a lesson in salvation. So let's start with the first lesson Jonah learns, and through him that we're called to learn too, a lesson in sovereignty. Now, if you've been around Harvest for any amount of time, or a church like Harvest, a church in the uh, Reformed tradition, as we say, you might know that we talk a whole lot about God's sovereignty, right? Use the word sovereignty quite a bit. Now, to refer to God's sovereignty, if you don't know anything about that, is to, first of all, point out an attribute of God, something that's taught in the scriptures about who God is, something that's fundamental to who the Lord is. And second, to say that God is sovereign is to affirm that nothing happens in this world or in our lives apart from the will of God. As the psalmist puts it in Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God is king. He's the absolute sovereign. He wields all authority over heaven and earth. And this is such a foundational doctrine, and we talk about it all the time, but it's really important because it grounds so much about what we believe about God and what happens in God's world. Apart from God's sovereignty, we really would live in a chaotic world without order, without hope, without ever being able to trust any promises that God says. But if God is sovereign over all things, which indeed he is, and the scriptures affirm that, if nothing is outside of his control, that also means that God is sovereign in our salvation as well. And that's what we find when the passage opens. Remember, Jonah had just been tossed overboard after this terrifying storm struck on the high seas. But but that storm, as chaotic and terrifying as it was, we heard back in chapter 1, it wasn't a random storm. It wasn't something that just happened to pop up on the Mediterranean Sea. Because we were told explicitly back in chapter 1 that it was the Lord who hurled that great storm upon the sea. It was a storm that was sovereignly ordained by God. And now, when Jonah begins to sink to the depths of the sea, the Lord sovereignly appoints Jonah's deliverance, his salvation, through this instrument of a great fish. Now, for context, remember that thus far in the book of Jonah, the prophet has been cast in terrible light. Nothing that he's done up until this point would indicate that this is a virtuous prophet who's worth being saved. 
throughout chapter 1 to review. These polytheistic pagan sailors, these mariners on the high sea, they prove themselves to be far more righteous than Jonah, even, even more attuned to the things of God than Jonah the prophet of God was. As Jonah sinks to the depths of the sea, there's no indication that he's repented of how he's run away from God the days before. Rather, it seems that when the mariners throw him overboard, he simply has resigned himself to perishing at the bottom of the sea. There's nothing that Jonah says or does as he's thrown over, overboard of this boat that would indicate Jonah is this virtuous guy who's worth save, being saved. And yet we still read in, in verse 1, uh, chapter 17, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 17, that God sovereignly appoints this giant fish to swallow up Jonah and save him. Not because Jonah deserves it, because Jonah most decidedly does not deserve it, but only because God is sovereign over his salvation and over our own as well. Now, the instrument of Jonah's salvation in this case, it's rather odd, right? This is a story we read about as, as children. This story often makes it into children's story Bibles because it's a, it's a unique miracle. It's an otherworldly miracle. Uh, this giant fish is the thing the Lord appoints to be the vehicle of, of Jonah's salvation. But because of the oddity of such the, an unusual instrument of salvation, well, many people over the years, as you would expect, have called into question the historical truth of the book of Jonah. You know, to modern ears, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this sounds far-fetched at best and downright ridiculous at worst. Now, at this point, some commentators, they make mention of, of more contemporary stories of things that are, have been reported in the news where people have um, fallen into the sea and have uh, been saved um, in, the, in the belly of other giant aquatic animals in order to prove that what happens here in Jonah isn't as impossible as some people claim. And I think those stories are, are, are worth uh, reading. They, they, they certainly add weight to what we read about in this passage. What we believe here in this story is that this is historical, that this actually happened, and those contemporary stories lend weight to, to, to that claim. But let me point out something important here. You see, it's true that Jonah's miraculous deliverance through this great fish is pretty wild. Any way you slice it, this isn't something that happens every day, right? Not something that we see often. But that's kind of the point. Because if you think that this is wild and unusual and doesn't happen every day, how wild is it to our sensibilities that God would sovereignly save someone even despite their worthiness to be saved? You see, this, this miraculous deliverance of Jonah fits remarkably well with the theological underpinnings because it illustrates something deeper that's also pretty wild but also very much true. Namely, that salvation belongs exclusively, 100% to the Lord. And that we do not add anything to it at all. The reason we find this whole prayer in chapter 2 in the first place, we have to understand, is because Jonah was sovereignly saved by God. It didn't have anything to do with him at all. And if God is sovereign in salvation... Well, that has to mean that our response to this truth is one of deep humility, even in our despair and suffering. So what does that look like? What does it look like to have humility in our despair and suffering in response to the great salvation God sovereignly works? Well, 
Look at what Jonah does when we get to verse 1 of chapter 2. At the beginning of that, we read that when the Lord sovereignly appoints this great fish to swallow up Jonah, Jonah responds through prayer. You see, prayer is the, one of the ways that we express humility in response to God's gracious sovereignty in our salvation. The Apostle Peter draws a similar connection when he writes this in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Notice what Peter says in that passage. He first calls us to recognize as Christians the mighty hand of God and how the mighty hand of God is at work in orchestrating his divine sovereign will in precisely the ways that he has ordained that his will be carried out. And then in response to that, Peter calls us to humble ourselves under his mighty hand by casting all of our anxieties upon him in prayer and recognizing that God's sovereignty is a very good sovereignty for his children. And this is what Jonah begins to do in our passage. After arrogantly running from God, he experiences God's sovereign hand, recognizing that he didn't do anything to deserve God's sovereign, gracious hand in his salvation. And even though all of his problems aren't solved at this point, he's in the belly of the fish, he's not back on the land, he's not enjoying the luxuries of life right now, he's still humbled by this. And he breaks out in prayer. And this is the first lesson that I think is impressed upon us as well. Namely, that in our despair or suffering or whatever other lot the Lord calls us to walk through, he desires not that we would run from him, not that we would just stuff down the confusing situations the Lord calls us to walk in, but that we would turn to him in prayer, even if that prayer is a prayer of lament. Sovereignty calls us to humility expressed in prayer. And as Jonah then begins to translate his experience in the belly of the fish, coming to terms to terms with the reality of human sin and of his own sin too. And so this leads to our second point. Second, we learn a lesson in human sin as well. And when we get to verse two, this is where Jonah actually begins his prayer. And the remarkable thing is, this is the first time in the book of Jonah that we read anything about Jonah actually speaking to God. Now remember, in the opening chapter, we heard the Lord spoke to Jonah, but how did Jonah respond? He didn't speak back to the Lord. In fact, he tried to run from the Lord. We also heard Jonah speak to the mariners about the Lord, but we didn't hear Jonah say anything to the Lord. And to make matters worse, the mariners actually called out to the Lord before we hear anything about Jonah calling out to the Lord. But now at last, Jonah has been humbled, right? He's been humbled by God's sovereign and gracious hand. And now that he's at his lowest point in the belly of the fish, he begins to speak to God. That's good. And in the first part of his prayer, he reflects on two aspects of human sin. And he begins to translate his experience through the lens of those two aspects. The first of which is the simple reality that sin always leads to death. This is the first lesson Jonah teaches us about sin, that sin always leads to death. Notice that Jonah begins his prayer in the belly of the fish by reflecting upon what just happened immediately when he was thrown overboard by the mariners. 
He, he mentions how he was in distress, as you would expect, as he sank to the bottom of the sea, and then crying out to the Lord. He talks about how he cried out to the Lord in his desperation. And then he also uses this word sheol in order to describe the depths of the sea. If you see that in verse, in verse 2, he says, Out of the belly of sheol I cried. Now, this word in Hebrew, Sheol, we come across it a few times in the scripture. It's a word that loosely means the place of the dead. And in some places in the Old Testament, this, this word takes on um, the meaning of hell itself, the place of judgment. And in other places, including here, it's used more as a metaphor for just the darkness and gloom that we experience at death. To be in Sheol in the Old Testament, it was feared, it was to be in a hopeless state away from the presence of the Lord. And regardless of the precise sense in which Sheol takes in this context or that context, it's not a place that the saints want to go. To be in a dark and gloomy place of death, that's not a place that anyone would want to go, but it's a place the Old Testament teaches us that everyone is bound for because of human sin. And when Jonah mentions this gloomy destination of Sheol, there seems to be a recognition on his part, a slow recognition, but a recognition nevertheless of what just happened on the high seas. Because he recognizes that it was the Lord who cast them into the seas. The mariners, they may have been the literal instrument of that, but Jonah knows who really did it. And he also knows why the Lord did that. Because he recognizes that he sinned. And he recognizes that the wages of sin is death and Sheol. And as he sinks to the bottom of the sea, he begins to describe this death, this death due to sin, with some really potent and powerful imagery. In verse 6, he pictures death as, uh, and Sheol as this prison that locks away its inhabitants. In verse 5, he talks about the weeds wrapping around his head as if he's being wrapped in burial shrouds on his way towards death. The imagery, again, it's potent, but through it all, Jonah is simply describing what he was forced to reflect upon in the belly of the fish, namely that sin always leads to death and separation from God. And yet the hope that surfaces throughout the Old Testament is that God is still faithful to his own sheep, even in Sheol. Notably, in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 8, King David, he prays this. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And even if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Understand that God is teaching us there that he will not ultimately abandon his people. Even when his people are wrapped up in death and Sheol. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, this truth was magnified for us in a great way. Because we read in the New Testament that Jesus Christ, he went to the grave. He went, as it were, to Sheol. But then, as one author put it, he broke down the prison bars from inside so that his people might rise again to everlasting life. Remember, we just heard Sheol described as this prison with great bars that you can't break out of. And yet the good news of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ did just that so that we might rise with him. And in Jonah's otherwise hopeless descent to Sheol and death, well, he's met head on as he reflects by the faithfulness of the Lord despite his sin. And this is the second lesson about human sin that Jonah invites us implicitly to reflect upon. 
In the middle of his prayer, as he reflects upon his descent to Sheol, to the watery depths because of his sin, he expresses a firm confidence that the Lord remains faithful to his own sheep, despite our sin. Specifically, in view of how God just snatched him from the depths of Sheol, he declares in verse 4, Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Now, while he had been descending to, to what verse 5 says, the roots of the mountains, the place of Sheol, the furthest place away from God, now that God has stepped in through the medium of this great fish, Jonah's confidence is restored, and he expects to gaze upon the temple of the Lord. Understand that the temple in Jerusalem was on top of a mountain. It was on top of Mount Zion. It was the place where heaven was said to meet earth, the place where worshipers in the Old Testament would go in order to be closest to God. But to draw near to, the God, to God in that temple required sacrifice. It required a priestly mediator for someone to stand in the gap between you as a sinner and God as perfectly holy. Access in the temple was possible, but not on your own. And in the same way, Jonah recognizes in this statement upon ga about gazing upon the temple that God himself has just stepped in as his mediator in providing this great fish, this giant fish. And Jonah is now confident that because the Lord has stepped in and mediated for him because of his sin, that he'll be able to look upon the temple and worship God in his holy splendor. In short, Jonah recognizes God's faithfulness, his abundant faithfulness to preserve access between him and his people despite the sin of his people. And so throughout the first part of this prayer, Jonah translates his experiences of despair and he comes to a powerful remembrance in the process about his sin and how sin always leads to death, but how God is faithful to his own even in their sin. But understand that in order to translate confusing things, as we already talked about, we need help, right? Again, I can't translate Hindi on my own. Someone could show me Hindi and I'm lost. I don't know what to do with that stuff. And we can't really translate our experiences of despair without help either. And so how then, as Jonah's in the belly of the fish, reflecting upon what just happened, is he able to bring any sense at all to his experience? Well, one of the noteworthy features about Jonah's prayer is that the entire thing is saturated from beginning to end with God's word. Now, if you're a person who uses a reference Bible, you can look through chapter 2 and see all of the references that are given and find that Jonah is echoing the scriptures everywhere, specifically the Psalms. There are echoes and allusions throughout this prayer to Psalm 18, to Psalm 120, to Psalm 103, to Psalm 31, and to Psalm 130, just to name a few. Understand that Jonah, as he prays and brings interpretation, translation to his experience, He's bringing in God's word to help translate what just happened. It's God's word that helps him translate his own experience, to help him understand his sin, to help him recognize the faithfulness of God. And friends, the same is true for us when God calls us to walk through suffering or despair as well. We can't translate that on our own. Instead, we need God's word to bring some type of understanding and order to our sin and to our suffering. Let me tell you a story. Back when I was in seminary, 
I had um, an adjunct professor for some of my preaching classes, a guy who I really benefited from a lot. Um, his teaching was great. He was a local PCA pastor in the kind of the Daytona Beach area. Um, really helped, helpful instruction that I received from him. Well, after I had my last preaching class with him, um, the summer hit, and sadly we got word that during the summer when he was out riding his bike, he had a horrible accident. I don't quite remember all the details. He either had a massive heart attack or it was a stroke. I don't quite remember. But in the aftermath, he spent many long weeks in the hospital trying to recover. And eventually he did recover, which was incredible that he even recovered and was able to walk again. But in the aftermath of this accident, one thing that he suffered was a number of long-term and short-term memory effects. First thing, he didn't remember that he was a pastor. He didn't remember the people in his church. As I recall, he couldn't even remember his family or his wife. But in speaking with a friend of his shortly after the accident or a few months after the accident, after he was starting to recover, he told me something pretty incredible. And it was that even though there was so much he couldn't remember and that he was trying to come to terms with again, he was still able somehow to quote certain passages from the Bible that he had memorized previously. He didn't know what they meant, of course, but he had certain passages, certain, certain parts of the Word of God so lodged in his memory that even when he forgot so much, he was still able to recall God's Word and God's promises. Now, I would imagine that Jonah, as he's in the belly of the fish, he doesn't have his um, theological library with him. I doubt that he has his ESV Bible app with him as well. But he did have God's word so lodged in his memory that even when he's in hopeless despair, he was able to recall God's word. It never left his mind. Commentator Richard Phillips puts it like this. He says, quote, Jonah's long experience with the Psalms results in the greatest of all helps in his darkest hour of need. His mind is returned to the Lord, and his heart is refreshed in God's grace. And friends, would that be true of us as well? Now, this is one of the reasons that we've recommended at the beginning of this year to memorize Scripture, begin the discipline of memorizing Scripture if you've never done that before. It's not because you may lose access to your Bible one day, although many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that's very true of them who live in places of persecution. But for us, it's, it's primarily so that the word of God would be so lodged within your heart that even when it looks like all of your experiences in this world are like Hindi letters, confusing and jarring, that you still are able to do a little bit of translation and hold on to things that regardless of circumstances are always true. Things like God's sovereignty. Things like God's faithfulness to us in our sin. You know, some of you may know that um, early in my childhood, from about grades 3 to 12, um, I played the saxophone. I was into the tenor saxophone. If you didn't know that, don't call me to play the saxophone now because it's been about 12 years since I've picked up a saxophone. I don't remember very much about it. But what's incredible is that when I pick up a hymnal today in church and I look through the hymnal and I read the music, I find that my fingers... They just go naturally towards where they would go on my tenor saxophone. I can't get it out of my mind. Even when it's been 12 years, that muscle memory is still there so that I can't avoid looking at a piece of music and, and, and pretend, without realizing it, that I'm playing the saxophone. But would that be our approach to God's word as well? 
Would we become so familiar with the scriptures that even when our souls are dark and dreary, God's word would just somehow pour from our lips and our hearts and revive us in hope? Would we so teach the scriptures to our children and impress it upon them in their young age that even if, God forbid, they should get older and become prodigal children for a time, as I know sadly some of your children are today, that they wouldn't still forget the promises of God, that the hope of the gospel would still be rooted and lodged in their heart, and that the Lord willing that they would come to their senses because they know the scriptures that have been so lodged within them and return to the Lord. So Jonah remembers these important lessons about sin, about God's faithfulness, because he remembers God's word, because God's word is ever before him, even when he tried to run from God and his word. And in doing so, he teaches us some important things about how we bring these things to remembrance in our sin, in our suffering, and in our despair. But as we come to our final point in the final part of our passage, we also learn that Jonah teaches us an important lesson about God's salvation. And you know, in the process, he teaches us something important about God's salvation that he himself doesn't seem to recognize. And so let's go there. And as we come to verses 7 through 10, 7 through 10, don't forget the context. Remember, Jonah is still in the belly of the fish. Throughout chapter 2, until we get to the very end, verse 10, he's still in the belly of the fish. Now, to be sure, God had saved him from drowning into the sea, but, but it's not like at this point everything is better. Remember, he's not yet back on dry land. He's not back to the luxuries of life that maybe he enjoyed beforehand. He's still in this belly of the fish. And yet, because the word is so lodged in his heart, he trusts that the work that God has begun within him, in him and for him and through him, in saving him from the belly of the fish, God is going to bring to completion. He, he trusts that even though things still look dire, even though everything still hasn't been solved, there's still no question in Jonah's mind how things are going to end because he knows that when the Lord commits to saving his people, he will indeed save them. And so too, brothers and sisters, understand that Jonah's confidence in the Lord's perfect salvation that echoes throughout the whole prayer, really, but, but, but he, especially in these final verses, and in the confidence that Jonah knows he will look upon the temple of the Lord one day, understand that this is a confidence that we have in even greater measure than Jonah, because our hope rests on an even surer foundation than Jonah's did. You know, we mentioned earlier in the sermon how Jonah's experience here points to our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Gospels, in the New Testament, you might remember from Pastor Jacob's sermon um, several months ago now, back when we were in Matthew 12, whenever that was, that in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is confronted with his typical antagonists, the Pharisees, and they say to Jesus, we want you to do a sign. We want you to prove who you are by doing a sign. But this is how Jesus responds. In Matthew 12, 39 through 41, he says, quote, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
Now, Jesus compares himself in that passage to Jonah in a few ways, but the obvious one is that just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, so too Jesus would spend three days in a tomb after his crucifixion. But there's also another connection, namely that just as Jonah was saved through judgment, eventually emerging from the fish to to preach to the Ninevites, Jesus went through an even greater and more definitive judgment than Jonah did. Because Jonah was saved from Sheol, right? He was saved as he descended. Just when he got to Sheol, he was saved out of that. But our Lord Jesus Christ took on the full weight of our sin. The full weight of judgment, of the wrath of God that, was, that, that each of us deserved for our sin. And he descended all the way down to the grave. But then, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, three days later, he burst forward from the grave. And he carried with him the resurrection hope that we as God's people have before us today. See, while Jonah expresses this firm confidence in the Lord's perfect salvation because he's begun to experience a resurrection of sorts, understand that our hope as Christians in the new covenant is set into a higher octave because we see the perfect salvation that Jesus Christ has already won for us. Now, we might not know whether God is eventually going to change the circumstances that he calls us to walk through in this life, right? He doesn't promise to heal us from cancer. He doesn't promise to provide the perfect job for us, but he does promise that in our despair and weariness, that those things do not speak the final word. And in Christ's resurrection, we carry with us the hope that death does not win and that it will never speak the final word over you and me. And so despite our despair, Jonah's final explanation at the, at the end of this prayer where he says salvation belongs to a lo- the Lord, this is a profession that you and I can declare with even greater confidence with Jonah than Jonah because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is a truth that's even more remarkable given Jonah's very imperfect response to the Lord. You see, when we look through Jonah's prayer and his response throughout it, you know, there's a lot of things that he says that are true. A lot of truths that he declares about God's sovereignty. A lot of truths he declares about human sin and about grace. But there are also several things that are said and not said that are somewhat revealing too. For example, when Jonah confesses in verse 8 that those who pay regard to idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, well, That's an orthodox and true confession, right? But who does he have in mind? Well, the mariners from chapter 1, those who did what Jonah should have done and eventually feared the Lord earlier than Jonah actually did. You see, there's a little bit of self-righteousness lurking at this part in Jonah's prayer. And then Jonah commits himself. He says, I will sacrifice and vow vows to the Lord. Again, that's a good response. But that's something that the mariners, these pagans, have already done. In summary, Tim Keller comments, quote, Jonah sees the literal idols that the pagans worship, but doesn't see the more subtle idols in his own life that keep him from fully grasping that he too, just like the heathen, lives only and equally by God's grace. Additionally, throughout this passage, Jonah draws this implicit connection between sin and death, which we already saw, But what does he not do? He never confesses his sin in this passage. And then he describes his his descent in verse 7 into the sea. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord. But, but, 
But in context, who actually remembered who here? Was it Jonah that first remembered the Lord? No, it was the Lord who remembered him. Jonah rightly declares at the end of this passage, salvation belongs to the Lord, but he doesn't grasp the full implications of his own confession. And that will be abundantly clear as Jonah moves along into Nineveh. You know, one of my former seminary professors, Mark Furtado, says this about Jonah's confession at this point in the book. He writes, quote, though perfectly true, though his confession here is perfectly orthodox, this affirmation will end up sounding quite ironic. After all, Jonah later refuses to grant God permission to extend this salvation to any of his choosing, namely the Ninevites. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But what Jonah's going to later do is say, not to the Ninevites not to the Ninevites. He doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. And then this all comes to a head. Jonah's imperfect response comes to a head in verse 10, where God speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah out on dry land. It's not the most pleasant of images, but at least Jonah is saved. But there are at least two things in this final verse that indict Jonah even further. First, the fish actually listens to God's word, whereas Jonah up until now has not. Remember, he was saved despite himself, not because he did anything or even listened to God. And then second, the word that's used for the fish expelling Jonah is telling. Because there's other Hebrew verbs that could have been used to describe Jonah's exit from the fish. But the fact that this is the verb chosen indicates that Jonah's heart doesn't really match his confession. His heart is somewhat repulsive, worthy of being vomited out as he is. And so understand then that Jonah, yes, he's made some progress in this prayer but he hasn't yet arrived. He still has a lot more to learn about humility. And yet despite his imperfect response to the Lord, the Lord continues to be faithful towards him. And friends, so too the Lord remains faithful to you and me too. Jonah's translation efforts throughout this passage, they're, they're okay, but they're elementary. He's not yet a skilled translator. He hasn't yet translated his experience accurately because there's still some lingering pride that's maximized or minimized in his eyes his own sin. And yet the Lord is still faithful. And so too, there might be many times in our own discipleship where we translate quite poorly, where we prove ourselves to be awful translators by either minimizing the grace of God or maximizing our own worthiness to receive only good things from God. And in this way, Jonah is really a mirror into our own hearts. But even so, the Lord's salvation of his people is so sure that even when he disciplines us, he doesn't let us go. Even when we forget him, like Jonah does, he doesn't forget us. Even when we treat other people in a cringeworthy way, his faithfulness towards us doesn't change. Even when our response to God is less than perfect, clouded as it often is by our own despair or our own sin, the Lord's salvation is perfect. So to wrap up our time, Jonah's prayer teaches us these three important lessons about how to translate our own experiences of despair and suffering well. And yet at the same time, these important lessons about sovereignty and sin and salvation, well, they probably don't answer every single question we have when we're plunged into despair and suffering. They don't answer all of the specific questions that might surface when we face the loss of someone we love. They don't answer all the specific questions we might have when we feel directionless or aimless in our work. They don't answer all of the questions we have when we're trying to navigate the weeds of conflict. But they do anchor us in what's most important. 
They translate our experiences from a jumbled mess into these clear, definitive truths. And so, brothers and sisters, as you walk through whatever it is that the Lord has called you to walk through right now in this season, be anchored in these truths. Let these truths be the prism through which you translate your experience well. And don't forget that in Christ we have a God who we can call out to at all times and say like Jonah does in our passage, my God. In Christ he is your God, in Christ he is my God, and in Christ he invites us to cry out just like Jonah does in this passage. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word and how your word helps us translate our own experience as well. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to reflect upon your word in our own discipleship, that your word would serve as a mirror into our own hearts, that through your word you would surface the reality of our sin. Through your word you would surface the places where we fail to trust in you. Through your word you would surface the, 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 the beliefs that we have about you or about your world that don't conform with what your word actually says. I pray, Lord, that as, as we walk forward in our discipleship, that, that we would exercise a certain humility in recognizing our weaknesses and even trying to interpret our experiences, that we would turn to you regularly in prayer, that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, and in doing so, Lord, that we would experience the perfections of your salvation that you've already worked for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.